Lydia is a Mexican investigative journalist and activist who's a courageous champion of the rights of women and girls to live free from violence. Her work has required exceptional courage. She's been the subject of imprisonment, threats, violence, in a way that most of us find, um, you know, quite impossible to, to understand or imagine. Her exposure of the involvement of corrupt officials and businessmen in a network of child pornography was recounted in her book, The Demons of Eden, caused a nationwide scandal in Mexico. Her new book, Slavery, Inc., outlines the enormous scope and scale of the global sex industry and the trafficking of women and children in its service. We were so um, keen to have Lydia talk because when we think of slavery, of what it is, we are so inclined to think that this is something that is a problem of the past, that we live with the heritage of it in many different ways. Um, but she is giving us a real account of how it's something that's happening and to you know, the, the extent with the tentacles and the scope of that business, how it touches our world and, and in some ways renders us complicit in what is a modern slave trade. Lydia Cacho. Thank you, thank you so much. Thank you, Anne. Well, I'll stand up for a while. I've been sitting for a long, long time, so. Um, thank you for giving us your Sunday morning. Um, I'm going to tell you a couple of secrets about slavery and how it, it, um, it goes about around the world, but I will tell you about uh, my personal life first so you understand why I'm so crazy and do what I do and uh, go after these mobsters around the world. When I was a little girl, my mom um, was uh, in, growing... Um, up in Mexico City, my mom was a psychologist and a feminist, and she would go into slums in, around Mexico City and um, would take me, my sisters, and my brothers to take care of the little kids while my mom was working with the women and talking about their rights and stuff like that. And I kept getting really, really angry because all these children didn't have um, enough food, and in particular, I remember, I was probably eight years old when, when I was trying to draw, you know, some animals with a little boy there, and he couldn't hold a, a pencil. He'd never hold a, held a pencil in his life. And I couldn't grasp the, the idea of a child not being able not only to write, but to draw something, a little animal. So I was really angry, and I was on the way back home with my mom, and I kept asking mom, why is this? How come... We do have this, and they don't. And my mom was uh, quite crazy, too, even though she was a psychologist. She kept saying, you don't like it. And I said, no, of course not. And she said, what are you going to do about it? And I said, I'm, I don't know. I'm only eight years old. What can I do about it? And she said, think about it. So anyway, by the time I was 14 or 15, I came to this existential crisis, which is not a normal teenage existential crisis, in which I, I worried about boys and other things. I worried about the world, and I was really mad, really angry at my mom because she put me in such a position. So uh, for a while there, I was really, really angry. So I took up judo and karate. <laughs> and every time in school, a bully um, um, was molesting or being aggressive to a girl, I was there to defend them, right? So um, one time I was almost expelled because I, I practiced my karate with one of the boys of, at the school that was really aggressive to one girl in particular that I didn't even know the girl, right? So after this happened, um, when I turned 18, one day I, I, was, I was riding 
in my diary. I'm wondering what could I do with that anger? I should do something about it, right? Because this, um, I had two options. One was uh, to get into organized crime. It would be a good career, as we all know. In Mexico, it's great business. It makes lots of money. Uh, just if you take uh, sex slavery, for example, it makes $150 billion a year. So it's great business, of course. You can exercise all the violence you want. You can uh, step on human rights of everybody else. And um, then the other option was to do something interesting that made me a better person. And I guess I was raised well enough to understand that that's what I wanted. So I became a journalist. And when I started doing journalism in Southeast Mexico, in the Caribbean uh, side of Mexico, I kept on going to these small towns, Mayan towns, indigenous towns, to interview women, because I wanted to explain to the world how poverty and racism was affecting them. They didn't want to talk about poverty or the lack of food. They didn't want to talk about politics. They wanted to talk about domestic violence. So I remember I wrote my first big piece on domestic violence, and I went running to my editor. I was so proud. I was 23, you know. You think you can do whatever when you're 23. And my editor was like, what is this? Are you crazy? Domestic violence is a family thing. It's a private thing. You don't write about it. So now I have to tell you that I'm 51. This happened a long time ago. Uh, and now we see in the media, we see all the time stories about domestic violence, and most of the people will think that domestic violence is a terrible crime, right? But back then, most of the people, including judges and politicians and journalists and a lot of people and grandmothers and grandfathers, thought domestic violence was a private thing. So it's the same thing. When we talk about things like sex, when we talk about prostitution, we think we still believe that it's a personal choice and it's not our problem. And I will try to uh, convince you on how it is your problem, what is happening around the world when we talk about sex slavery, uh, not only in Cambodia, on uh, Southeast Asia or Pacific Asia that is nearby you, but also what is happening in the US, in Europe, and of course in Latin America. So uh, after a while, after interviewing all these people, I, I had a radio program, and here I was talking about domestic violence and talking about the rights of women. And all of a sudden, one day, I'm in my tiny radio station talking about these issues, and the producer starts banging in the, in the window, and he, he's just, like, really scared. So I, so I thought, somebody wants to rob and attack the radio station, what's going on? So I go there and open the door, and there's... There I see like 25 women. They're standing there going like, Lydia, Lydia, thank you, thank you for opening the radio. And they came in and they started talking about their lives. And then at the end they said, we're leaving our husbands, you're right. And I'm like, no, 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 what do you mean you're leaving your husbands? They yeah, 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 you're right, we have rights and this is not fair, we're leaving. Uh, and then one of them, the eldest one, just looked at me and she, she said, oh, you're so young and sweet, we're going to live with you. We're going to your home. <laughs> And I just kept looking, and I'm like, no, you can't. I live in a tiny apartment with my husband, and he wouldn't like it. And um, so 
I told them, okay, let's go to social services and find out what you can do because you don't want to live in a household in which your husband tells you what to do, what not to do. He rapes you, he, he beats you, and he mistreats your kid. So we went to social services, and I was like, I'm a journalist, see? And this is what is happening, so what are you doing about it? And she was like, oh, no, 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 ladies, go back home, behave well, you know, cook the meals as your husband asks you to, and stop complaining. Family is first. I couldn't believe what I was hearing, so I decided that I wanted to do something, and I gathered a group of uh, friends, uh, most of them were journalists, and told them we have to open a house, a big house in which women that can want to get away of this kind of relationship in which the the man, the husband, is the owner of the house. He takes up his money and her money, in the cases that they, uh, she works, and um, or she can go with her kids so they won't be mistreated and she can get a new life. So I open a shelter. And I, just, I open a big <laughs> shelter, uh, and I call it the high-security shelter for battered women, and then eventually it became a center also for women that were um, trafficked, especially uh, human trafficking, sex trafficking um, of teenagers. So I'm telling you this story because it has a lot to do with how um, things develop later in my life. So we opened the shelter, and I, I, so I took up psychology, and I started studying trauma, and I wanted to understand exactly how a victim became a survivor. That was my goal, because I keep, I keep thinking, I see so much people, so many people in the world that I really, really admire, and they have something um, really interesting. It's, they are real survivors. They can tell their stories, and they do not suffer while they tell the stories, right? So I, I took up psychology, I studied trauma. Um, I could tell you everything about post-traumatic stress. And then one day, I'm working, uh, on an assignment outside Mexico City, and I get attacked. And uh, this guy tried to kill me. And I, I really, really understood for the first time in my life the difference between theory uh, on violence against women and reality, and how, it, how you go through it, and what it means to have uh, people around you to rescue you, to help you go through the trauma and survive it. So there was my mom, my dad, my brothers and sisters, and everybody was there to make me uh, feel safe. Everybody was there to let me know that I didn't deserve the attack, that I was not guilty for the attack, and that I could um, get over the fear. And I did, so I did. I worked at it, and I did. And then I guess, as it happens, um, it got me prepared to face the real mobsters that, um, that I faced later in my life. So in 2003, I met this young woman. Uh, she just escaped a network of uh, sex trafficking in Cancun, Mexico. A hotel owner, very, very famous and rich guy, um, had a beautiful, big, five-star hotel oceanfront in Cancun, and he was exploiting children sexually. He was doing child pornography, and he was bringing uh, politicians and businessmen 
that liked to have sex with children to his hotel. He was doing two things. He was taping the children, training them to be um, uh, sex slaves for these people. His wife was his partner on this crime. And he was taping everything that happened in the parties he organized. So there he was, he had these tapes, videotapes, of him and all these politicians then having sex with the children. And some of these politicians are governors, some are senators, and some are congressmen. And when this little girl told me her story, I started investigating. So I found the names of policemen, and then I got there and I got some of the tapes. And I started getting uh, death threats. And this guy, Jan Sukarkuri, called the office at a magazine. I was an editor uh, back then. Um, and he said, I'm Jan Sukarkuri, he identified himself, and he said, you're going to die, so stop messing with our private issues. And I said, sure, of course I didn't stop messing, so I published a book called Demons of Eden. <laughs> And the book, Demons of Eden, um, I thought it was going to sell like 2,000 or 3,000 books, and I thought this is good because these guys will be exposed, and that's it, right? Um, so I sat down uh, with all my family, my father, my brothers and sisters, and I told them, you know, I'm going to publish this book, it's about these guys, and I'm naming the names of governors, of um, the national police secretary, I'm naming, uh, of course, the traffickers, the pornographers, and I'm explaining how these crimes are perpetrated and who are responsible, and I'm giving voice to all these children that were wonderful enough to tell me their stories. So this is dangerous, and my dad said, how dangerous, and I said, very, and he said, okay, go for it, we're with you. This is something you have to do. So I did. I presented the book, and then the day of the book presentation, in Mexico we have a really big, big book presentation. So the day of the book presentation, I, I called, that day in the morning, I called the, the chief of police, the good one, the good <laughs> chief of police that was fighting organized crime on federal level in Mexico, and I told him, we're going to have a book presentation on Demons of Eden, and he said, I just read it, and I'm going to send a couple of policemen to guard you, well, you have the presentation. I said, well, that's fine and dandy. And when we arrived to the presentation, we had 50 fully armed policemen surrounding the center where we had the presentation. So everybody felt quite safe. We had the presentation. And five months later, I get to my office. I arrived there. I, back then, I already had three federal guards supposedly guarding me because I had all these death threats from all these mobsters and politicians that were really, really angry at me for messing with their personal business. So um, I got out of my car, and a car came in, just like in the movies, and these guys came out of the car running towards me. One of them put a gun on my, on my arm, and then the other, the other two cars closed the streets. And then my... my guards were standing there like idiots, just looking at me like this. <laughs> and then the policemen, they, the guys that came to me, the gunmen, were just wearing civilian clothing, right? So I didn't know who they were. I thought they were part of the mobster group. So um, one of them said, tell your guards not to, 
take their guns out because everybody will be killed. So I, I just yell at them, no guns. So these guys take me um, in a car for 20 hours from Cancun to Puebla, which is 2,000 kilometers away. And all through those 20 hours, what they wanted me to do was either to, to choose. To have, I had a choice again. And the choice was I would either get killed on the way and then disappear, and nobody would know anything, and nobody would be guilty. As, um, uh, in Mexico, uh, there's no a rule of law in most of the cases, so I would just be one more disappeared, crazy journalist messing with uh, really, really bad guys. So the other choice I had was to sign a document they had with them. It was a legal document in which I was supposed to admit that all the contents of my book, Demons of Eden, were false, and that I wrote that book because I really wanted to get the attention of the world. And I, I said, I won't sign that document. And um, then after like, probably 16 hours of torture, one of the policemen got a phone call. And it was the governor of Puebla, who's the guy who ordered my arrest, my illegal arrest. I call it illegal kidnapping. And uh, he, he ordered my arrest. And he called the guy and said, bring her alive. So when the policeman took down his cell phone and said to the other guy in front of me, we have to bring her alive, I was so happy, you cannot imagine. I was like, yes, something good happened. And I'll tell you what happened. I mean, before this um, kidnapping, I, I knew I had all these death threats, right? And when you're a good journalist, when you're a good reporter, or you're trained to be safe, to take care of yourself and to tell others what to do in case something happens. Something meaning from getting shot to getting death threats to disappearing or to getting killed. So that's what I did. I prepared um, my team at the shelter and my team at the magazine. I talked to everyone and I told them, if something happened, this is what you have to do. You call Amnesty International, you call Human Rights Watch, you call my husband, of course, and you call everyone and you let them know what's going on. So that's what happened. As soon as I was arrested, the policeman that got me didn't know that I put video cameras outside my office. So if you're interested, you can go on YouTube and you put Lydia Catch's kidnapping and you can look at it <laughs> via YouTube. So these guys didn't know that. And, uh, and so I get there alive, and then the media interview me, and they put me in jail anyway, because that's Mexico. And they put me in jail anyway, and I went through a trial for a year. They wanted me to stay in jail for, for 20 to 30 years, and the charges against me were criminal uh, defamation and libel. Because the law in Mexico used to say it changed, thankfully, thanks to my case in part. But the law said that if I write, for example, if somebody comes into a bank and robs the bank, and you write an article in the newspaper saying the name of the person who robbed the bank, who you saw rob the bank, who is on tape robbing the bank, and he hasn't gone through trial, then you're defaming the robber. So this is exactly what happened with this guy. He said, uh, even though I had the videotapes, even though I had the proof that he was doing child pornography, 
even though I had 200 photographs of these men, very prominent men, businessmen and politicians, having sex with four, six and eight-year-olds, I was the one in jail. So going through the trial, I ended up getting, uh, being able to uh, finish my, my, um, the, the trial um, outside of jail. So one day, I'm, I'm there, and for the first time in my life, I'm going to confront this guy, Kamel Nassif is his name. He's a uh, um, tycoon, he's a millionaire uh, businessman. He has uh, factories that manufacture clothing for everyone. They used to manufacture things for Disney. They used to manufacture them for Gap, and we were able to stop these companies buy, to buy things from him. So anyway, he's there, and all the children that I interviewed were so afraid of this guy. They told me he was very cruel, very aggressive, he was terrible to them, and he was very dangerous. They all thought he was going to kill them if they talk, because he kept saying so. And one of the girls from El Salvador died, so they were sure he would kill them. So I'm there, I get to the place, to the, to the trial, Inside jail, there's a small room. Um, it's nothing like, uh, like it happens in Australia or on B the BBC TV. In Mexico, it's imagine just a tiny room like this, and then you have a secretary with a computer that is chewing gum, and then the judge is a guy that goes like, walking like this, you know, dressed like a civilian, and then it's messy, and uh, there's no, um, nothing proper there. So I go in with my two lawyers, and I see this guy, Kamala Sif, for the first time in my life. And he's tiny. And I'm wearing high heels, like the ones I'm wearing now. And I see him, and he's so angry. And my lawyers go in, and they said, we have to talk to the judge. So they went in the chambers with the, law, the, with the judge, and so was his uh, attorneys. They go all together. And here we are with the secretary chewing gum, and then this guy is standing there, looking at me like he hates me, and I just, I don't know why, but I just went towards him like this. And I look at him and I said, Kamel, every time you look at my eyes, the eyes of every child you've abused will be looking back at you. So when I finish doing this, he goes back to the wall, and the secretary is just looking at me like this, going like, no way. And the judge comes out running with the lawyers because they saw us through the window. And my lawyers come like, Lydia, what did you say? What did you say? Because I was the one in trial, right? Not them. So I said, nothing. And his lawyers came to him and they said, Camille, what did she say? What did she say? And he just kept quiet for a while. And he looked at me and he said, nothing. And I thought, he's afraid. That is why I am a journalist. We are looking at him. Everybody knows his name in Mexico. Everywhere he goes. Waiters spit his, in, on his food in restaurants, I've been told. Um, <laughs> people hate him everywhere. He cannot be in a restaurant without people telling him he's a pedophile. He was going through this. And then he was going to trial, too, afterwards. I took him to uh, the Supreme Court, 
and him and all the, the other politicians involved in the network. So I kept, I kept thinking, if, if we have this guy that is very famous and he's losing all this money, because that's why he took me to trial. He wasn't taking me to trial not only because I exposed him as a pedophile and because he was part of a sex trafficking network in Mexico with children from everywhere, from other countries in Mexico. But um, he was also angry because he was losing a lot of money because of what I did, because people started mobilizing everywhere. So I got emails from people in the U.S., in Europe, telling me Kamala Seif has businesses in Shanghai, and he's working with this and that, and he's, you know, sending me evidence of everything. And I kept publishing everything. So all these um, famous uh, stores stopped buying things that he manufactured. And I started understanding how we network, see? Because not everyone, not everyone is going to go after the mobsters or the traffickers. Not everybody will go after the corrupted politicians that are protecting uh, sex traffickers around the world. But we can certainly go after them from the place where we work. It doesn't matter what we do. If we're politicians, if we're students, if we're teachers, academics, you name it, you can do something about it. If you really think uh, creatively from your standpoint of view. Um, so, I get Kamala Seif's story, and I, I go to, to, to a conference in Mexico, and all the people kept asking me, how do these guys bring the girls from the US, for example? Because I was able to gather evidence of a phone call between Kamala Seif and uh, Chan Zukarkuri, the owner of the hotel. And Kamala was asking him to bring a virgin girl from the US. And he was saying he wanted a little girl. And he was saying um, that he really, really wanted him to make sure that she was a virgin because 13-year-olds nowadays have sex, so he needed a virgin. And the guy said yes, and he said, how much is it? And he said, $3,000 plus the expenses and the paperwork, meaning the passport and everything else. So I kept thinking, this guy is paying $3,000 for a girl from Miami to be brought to him because he wants to have sex with a child. So I got that audio tape and I published it, of course. And it was on the radio in Mexico and he was really angry at me, so I kept getting all these death threats. Um, so I decided to go after many bad guys. I wanted people to understand how they network, how they work together, how the businessmen and the politicians and everybody in between that is protecting people are creating a business, a tremendously big business, which is called slavery. And now we know that um, 30,000 people um, are being exploited only in Mexico every year. And 30 million people are being enslaved around the world right now, as we speak. It's a great business. It gives them a lot of money, not only pleasure, but also money. So what I did was I followed the story from one young girl uh, from Venezuela that was sold into a brothel in Mexico. And from there I followed the story of a young uh, girl from the US who was sold to the Jacuzza in Japan, and so on and forth. And then in one of the chapters of my book, Slavery Inc., what I decided to do is to interview the clients 
Because I keep thinking, huh, these guys really make a lot of money because they have someone that is asking for these young women. And they're asking for younger and younger women. So clients of prostitution around the world are looking for younger women. Nowadays, the, the, your typical prostitution client from Australia to Europe to Latin America wants a woman that is younger than 25. And then, I also investigated how many uh, internet sites of pornography we have in the world. Countless. The expert kept, experts kept, kept telling me, probably 15 million. Another expert said, no, 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 it's like uh, 200 million pages of uh, pornography. And then I, I wonder how much of that pornography that we have, you know, for free on the internet, is teenage pornography. 25% of all free pornography that you can see right now on your computer, on your mobile, is teenage pornography. And guess what? It's free. And guess what? Most of our children will watch pornography twice a week. By the time they are 20, they will watch pornography, teen pornography, twice a month at least, and I'm not only talking about boys, I'm talking about girls too. Why, why is this important? Because it's linked to the business. I'm not going to moralize, I think I love sex, like every other person. I think eroticism is wonderful, I think that we should all enjoy um, um, loving um, erotic life, or at least very fun if you don't fall in love with a person. But what I'm sure is, Nobody deserves a sex life with violence. Nobody. And what we watch in pornography most of the time is a lot of violence. Submission, playing, playing submission, playing control, playing rape, imitating rape. And that's what the kids are watching. Who's making that pornography? Have you asked yourself? I know this, is, this might be a crime in some countries, of course, like Thailand or Cambodia, if I talk about it, but I do talk about it. If you're a parent or a grandparent, or if you're planning to have children eventually, just go on the internet and put teen, teenage sex, teenagers having sex. You'll be surprised what you watch. That is what they are watching. And these kids that are on that uh, computer screen are real kids. Who is tipping them? Not only criminal networks, some of their friends. So what we are understanding is that slavery is such a big business, not only because it's there in Cambodia and these awful, of course they are awful, brothels or in Mexico and in many, many countries around the world. It's also good business because we are here being witnesses of how normalization of violence against the world is being given to our children and to us. We're not even questioning that, right? Because, for example, in Victoria, here in Australia, when they decided to um, legalize prostitution, the, the discussion was, okay, if we give women a choice, they will choose to be prostitutes. Of course. And if they have a choice, then we will fight slavery, and we will fight the mobs. It's a lie. 10% probably here in Australia, 15% of women 
are in prostitution because they can't get in and out of it. What about the rest? What about the Aboriginal women that have been raped and abused since they were little girls? And then by the time they were 16, they thought it was the only way and the only, the only trade they knew about. We are very hypocritical around the world when we discuss these issues. Because sometimes we don't want to sit down and really talk them down. We sit down and decide that the discussion around the world right now on sex trafficking and on prostitution is legalize it. It's like legalized war. Uh -huh. Let's sell them guns and kill a lot of people, go invade Iraq, go invade Afghanistan. You know, it's good business. Kill people and then you'll make a lot of money out of it. Well, that's pretty much the same dynamics we're, watch we're seeing with slavery. It's like, sell them this. This is cool, you know? So when you discuss prostitution and um, sex trade around the world, including, of course, Australia, you have to look at the clients. So what I did was I went to all these brothels around the world, following the cases and different trails of the different mafias. And in order to get in, I had to, of course, I'm a woman, so the only way to get into a brothel is uh, either as a prostitute or um, as a madame that is looking for a younger woman, and I couldn't do that. So I dress up as a prostitute. A friend of mine that is very good at dressing people up, he, he did that, he trained me to walk in a certain way with really high heels, and I got in. I infiltrated some club, nightclubs that I knew for sure had teenage girls. And I found clubs in which they have 12 and 13-year-old girls in Dominican Republic, in Mexico, in the US, in Japan, in Cambodia. And then I also had to dress as a nun. Because there is an area in Mexico City that is incredibly dangerous, that is absolutely controlled by the traffickers, and the policemen are protecting these traffickers. And the only people that can go through those streets in, um, inside and through the motels where the clients go and have sex with young women uh, are the nuns, because the nuns work near that, nearby and um, they would bring food to some of the women and uh, some of the children. So I did dress up as a nun. I asked one of the nuns to help me, and here I was, you know, walking with my rosary, very, very uh, nervous. And then one of the traffickers, his, one of the pimps, he looks at me, he goes, say you, sister. And I was like, shit, he recognized me, what am I going to do? And he goes like, give me your blessing, you have good, nice eyes, you know. I can tell you're a good person. I'm like, yeah, sure, you know. Like. <laughs> so I did. But anyway, what I was able to do is I was able to see and count how many little girls were there in the brothels. Only in that area, a very, very small area in Mexico City, I found 140 little girls younger than 10 years old that were exploited sexually. And the police cars were outside there, protecting the pimps. So I document this, and you can read in the book, in Slavery Inc. And then I wanted to explain to people how clients thought. So I go in one of these clubs, and then I'm in, sitting in the bar, having a beer with some of these clients, and they're from Europe. They're in their 40s. 
some of them, most of them quite handsome. All of them were married, some were doctors, journalists, uh, writers, and uh, one of them was an Interpol policeman. And they are there as clients, right? So I'm dressed up with these fancy clothes and these big eyelashes and all the things that you wear to look like a prostitute, uh, like a fancy prostitute. And I told them, I noticed that the girls there are so young, so I'm so old to be here. They want, I mean, I'm going to blow my cover, right? Uh, so I tell them I'm retired, you know? I'm retired and I'm here just for old time's sake, you know, just <laughs> like remembering when I was young and happy and whatever. And they were so glad to meet me. They were like, oh, no, you, you could still turn tricks, you know? You still have a good body and everything. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, sure I do. And so I was able to interview them. And the reason why I was able to interview them is because I was objectified by them. They thought I was a prostitute. Then I was no danger at all, right? If I said, well, here, yeah, I'm a journalist and I'm interested in human rights and I write about organized crime and I'm really, really worried, I'm an expert on money laundering, they would, of course, kill me. So um, they told me all their stories and I wrote um, one chapter specifically on the clients. One of them caught my attention in particular and I kept listening and hearing this story over and over again in many countries. Um, I was a European man, and he said, you know, I'm happy. You know, my wife is fine, it's okay, she's beautiful, I have these kids, and everything is okay at home. But you know, I don't know what happened to European women. They lost the, you know, the passage for sex, you know? They, they're not good at it. They, they want to control it. They want to tell you when they want to have sex and when they don't. I'm like, really? Oh, <laughs> And he uh, say, yes, and you know, I like Latin women because they're so submissive, they're so obedient, they're so sexy. They still know who the man is in the relationship. And when he was telling me that, I was remembering some judo moves <laughs> and just smiling at him. So that was really important to me. This guy did me a wonderful favor, because that was a question I kept asking around the world to European and American and Mexican men. Why do you go to these places? Aren't you aware that these young women might be enslaved? Aren't you aware that these young women might be doing this because they have nothing else to do? And they could have a happy, joyful, free sex life, but not being enslaved like this and forced to have sex, or rape, or the kids taken away in order to pay a debt. And what they said was, no, we miss, we miss the other, the way women were, and uh, we like this, how manhood feels like. And I think that's one of the biggest secrets of the sex slavery industry, men. This has become sex slavery and slavery in general in the world, has become a tremendous burden to human beings. But it has become a tremendous problem for women 
in every country in the world. Because 93% of all NGOs that work to rescue girls and boys and women, who work on psychology groups to help them to go through the trauma of being enslaved, uh, are women. Are women that have a career, that have a life, and then on top of that, they are activists because they want to change things. And then some men feel really, really deep for these women. And most of them will tell me, Lydia, we need more women like you in the world. And I always answer, so get ready if any of you wants to tell me this, we need more men like me in the world. So... <laughs> Yesterday in Melbourne, somebody said, um, sex slavery is a woman's problem. And I said, it has become a woman's problem because men are not walking with us to end slavery. Of course, you're not going to go follow the, the traffickers. You're not going to investigate on their money laundering. There's people like me who doing, are doing that, and some of these guys, thanks to our work, are in jail now in different countries. But you can change things. The male population is not only co-responsible for this terrible crime around the world, but it's also co-responsible for not doing anything about it. We do have laws. In Australia, you have wonderful laws against trafficking, of course. You do have laws against child pornography. If you, uh, most of you must know about this. You have a cyber police, which is very good, as good as, as the one in the UK, which are the best in the world, probably. But... Um, Probably one out of 1,000 people has ever talked about child pornography on the internet and what it means and what it's doing to the children, not only in your country, but in other countries. And how many people that you know might be unaware that their kids, their children, their teenage kids are watching child pornography. They might be committing a crime in Australia because it is a crime to watch child pornography. But what if you're a child? Is it a crime? If you're 11 years old and you go on the internet and you tweet something and then there's this tweeter, um, on child, uh, a pedophile that is tweeting all these photos, sex photos of children. If it's a kid, is he or she committing a crime? And why is he or she committing a crime? We're not discussing this. We just think it's the mobsters back there, or the guys in Cambodia, or the ugly pedophiles going to Thailand to look for little girls and boys, which is true. That is happening. But then this is the things that are happening at home are the things that we can um, act upon. Australia has a group, a very small group of men that are working on masculinity. I found them on the internet, and it, it, it's very strange because I kept talking about this on the media. I, I did like more than almost 30 interviews in Melbourne in the last couple of days, and it's quite strange. Nobody has ever heard about the masculinity group in Australia, these men that are working with boys. So that tells you something about your media, your local media. What, What are you doing? Are you finding out what masculinity is? Are people working on this? Are you a father? Are you um, a man in general? And are you willing to set an example for other boys? What I learned doing all my investigations is that 
More than 90%, according to studies, of all pedophiles were raped and abused when they were little boys. Nobody ever rescued them. Nobody listened to them. Nobody paid attention to them. Nobody talked openly about it. Now we are. Thankfully, we are around the world talking about child abuse in many ways. But we are not working against it. Most of the abuses in the world, the ones that are just making these guys rich, are not seeing themselves in the mirror. And a part of my job, one of the reasons why I was invited here, is to talk about dangerous ideas. So here's a dangerous idea. Let's talk about masculinity everywhere we go. Let's read about masculinity, what it is to be a man, what it is to be owner of your own body. Feminists have talked for years and years about sexual and reproductive rights of women. And that's wonderful. We now know we own our bodies. And I don't know how many men know that. How many know, men are trained since they were little boys to own their own bodies, to own their sexuality, to own their eroticism, to learn how to love each other, to love themselves, to treat themselves well, to enjoy sexuality not only through their penis but through their entire being, to love their sexuality through communicating and having um, relationships with people. They, inter you know, they, they exchange emotions and body and fluids. We're not teaching them that. So why are we so surprised that this crime is still ongoing and growing everywhere around the world? Women did our homework. We are, you know, we are owners of our body, of our sexuality, we're owners of our rights, we try to fight for them, we try to teach our kids, boys and girls, to think differently about women. But men has not, they have not, you have not done your homework. And that, that is the best way to change the world, to take slavers out of business. That is a dangerous idea. Let's rebuild the notion of masculinity. And then all the mobsters like Kamala Sif or Jan Sukarkuri, who is now in jail, purging a uh, sentence of 112 years because he raped all the children I wrote about. Some of them are in jail, some of them are not. Let's stop the business. You can do it. You can do it in Australia, you can do it everywhere. Everywhere you go, all the people you influence over. It doesn't matter if you're in a business, if you're a teacher, if you're a journalist, let's do it. Let's just think outside of the little box. Let's rebuild the notion of masculinity, and then you will change the world. Thank you. Thank you so much to Lydia for that. We now have some time for some questions and discussion from you. There are microphones in the auditorium, one on each side. You can now see a light coming on over those. So 
do come um, and, uh, and ask Lydia a question. While we're waiting for people to come, I just want to ask Lydia briefly to clarify to us what the kind of conditions that people are held under that, you, uh, that are effectively slavery, because I think that's something that was quite shocking reading your book about, you know, you spoke of buying and selling and people being trafficked into, but just explain to our audience a little bit about what you mean by slavery in that context, how extreme the conditions are that people are held under. Well, it depends on, on the area, on the country, on the, the conditions, but um, most of the um, girls um, uh, that, I, that I saw everywhere around the world were um, held, of course, um, trained uh, through pornography. They were objectified by their trainers. Most of the, the, the people who hook these girls are men but the ones that train them and keep them inside the houses and held in different areas, in some kinds of cells, like in, in, in little cells um, in Cambodia and Thailand, are women. And are women who were prostituted when they were young, and then they came up in the ladder of the food chain of trafficking, and they ended up being uh, the tyrants and the, the torturers of the little girls. So, um, well... Um, you can you can read in the book, but it's um, it's a, a prevailing crime and it's growing, and more and more people are looking for young girls. So that mm. that is that is my point. Mm. We'll take a question from here. Um, hi. Hi. Um, in your book, Slavery Inc., you spoke very highly of Solomon Men. Um, I was wondering what your opinion of the. Uh, Confirm rumours that have come out recently about her. Um, she's resigned from her foundation due to the lies of her past. Um, I was just curious what effect you believe that could have on not only her foundation, but the overall NGO presence in Cambodia. Well, um, I don't know how, how many of you, but I know Somali. I met Somali um, before I met her. Uh, her shelter, I went to the shelter, I met a lot of people that had survived thanks to her. Uh, she had a terrible life when she was growing up and she, she, I guess she never truly became a survivor. She, she was always a victim because once people are gone, gone through that, um, if they don't have a chance to get away from that kind of life and you keep on helping victims all your life and hearing all these terrible stories, you don't completely heal, you know? So I guess... Um, Somali, just a human being that tried to do the best. Uh, and I don't know what this is going to uh, do to, to the foundation in particular. Uh, what I think is um, that um, she created a model in, in, in Cambodia now that people are, are copying around the world that works. And I've seen it. So I guess a lot of survivors uh, will keep on going with that work. I you hope want to continue? So. So, sorry. We've got a quite a, we, yes, one, just one more brief comment, please. Sorry. Um, do you feel like she, well, it's been confirmed that she uh, got girls to lie about um, their past. Um, do you feel she has exploited uh, young children herself for the I, gain of her foundation? I don't know. I don't know if she has exploited them. What I... Um, I feel, I feel for, for all the girls, of course, that went through this. And uh, 
it shocked me, as it shocked a lot of people who met her. Um, I guess a lot of activists end up doing that at one point or another in many, many areas. They think the world will not see and understand the, the, the horrific crime if the stories are not hor horrible enough. You know, that happens everywhere, uh, not only in child abuse uh, or child trafficking, but in every other area. Um, and we have to learn to do uh, this kind of work in a different way everywhere, not only human rights, but also, I mean, ask Greenpeace what they are doing. You know, we, we human beings tend to need exaggeration in order to understand, and that is a human problem. And we have to change that view. We have to learn from a different perspective. I guess NGOs have a work um, around the world to understand that um, the pedagogy of the changing the world, you know, it's not, not through horrifying people, but through telling the truth, absolutely. Mm. Over here. Hi, Lydia, thanks so much. Thank um, I have a question about the, um, when you were interviewing the clients, when you were undercover, because yeah. I'm a journalist as well, and it's, it's kind of this curious question where, you know, people tell me things and at what point do you then say to them, I'm a journalist, you know, so that they're aware of that? Because you can get, you know, a lot of information and interview people, but I'm just curious about that point or how you feel about that, you know, interviewing them when they don't know that you are a journalist. Well, I, I for example, I never did that to victims. I, uh, when I infiltrated clubs, I talked to the, to the women, young women or girls, um, and at some, some point I told them, I'm investigating this and I have to put my trust in them because it's, it's a trust issue. In the case that the guy is gonna kill you, you tend not to tell him you're a journalist, <laughs> you know? And that's pretty much uh, <laughs> my rule. Or if you're truly in danger in the situation, uh, the, you know, you're a journalist, but the, there's, um, there's an important rule. Gunter Wallraff, the, the famous uh, German journalist that is an expert on this. I, he's, he's a friend of mine and he gave me a lot of tips on how to infiltrate. And he's very good. There's an ethic, uh, the ethics of uh, infiltration in journalism have to do with the fact that you would not get the story any other way. And then when your life is at risk. Thank you. Over here. Hi, Lydia, thanks for your talk. Hi. My question, just a quick one, you spoke about an Australian group that's working with masculinity. Do you have the name of that at all? I, actually, I found them just writing about, you know, I Googled them and I wrote masculinity work and then it came out ma masculinity work Australia. And then it's this group of men that are doing amazing job or writing about doing amazing jobs. So. Okay, thank you. Thank you. Over here. Hi Lydia, uh, Hi. thanks for your talk today. Um, similarly, I have been involved in sort of uh, infiltrating um, <laughs> prostitution areas okay. from the other end, um, posing as a client. Um, um, but I guess um, what I found talking to women, um, sort of Chinese and Philippine women working in the South Pacific, is that often there were stories of, of poverty um, and being able to work, and women saying that, look, you know, this is work that we're doing now, and we rather than working in a, you know, a sweatshop or working in the fields. And their issue with being rescued is that you know, they've got a debt to pay back um, and, and the dangers of that. So I guess, you know, is the sort of poverty driving the slavery and, and how do we go about sort of dealing with that? 
Wow, that's a whole nother conference. Uh, <laughs> yes, of course, I agree with you. That's, that, that's an issue. I do not believe in organizations that go through um, these raids and rescue everyone against their will. Uh, when there are children, you have to rescue them. This is not a choice. But when they are adults, you cannot rescue someone that doesn't want to be rescued. And that sounds really harsh to people that is obsessed with just going somewhere and taking an adult woman and saying, no, 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 you cannot be a prostitute, come here, you're being enslaved. Um, it's, it's a more uh, complex process. And it's, if you are working on human rights, the first thing you have to say is you can help a person to understand what they're going through and to see their own life in their own narrative. And from there, you can explain to them what options they have. But it is absolutely irresponsible and it's a violation of human rights to go into these places and take women and, of course, decide that they have been victims if they are not. Uh, they do not consider themselves victims. And I'm talking about adults obviously. And yes, it's a poverty issue, as most of us understand, and that's something I talk about in the book, how the economic... Um, um, slavery is an economic crime around the world. Obviously, a lot of people um, are slaves because they need a job, they need to survive, and, uh, and they, they stay there. You know, uh, In some cases, they can, they can actually get out, and they, they won't, because that's the only choice they have. So we have to talk about choices and chances. If you truly have options, then you have a choice. If you do not have options, if capitalism is not giving you options, then you're not really choosing, are you? Mm. Thank you for such enhanced presentation. Thank you. Throughout uh, South America, religion plays a big role in a country, I would say, Mexico. Yeah. So what uh, Catholicism and, and religious doctrine on the parishioners to make awareness of what's going on in a society, such as um, pedophilia, sex, trade, and etc. That's my question. Well, um, I've investigated um, some pedophile networks run by priests, by Catholic priests in New Mexico. We do know all these famous cases of Irish, Irish um, priests that were uh, abusing children. Um, I do not know. I think, I think in, in some cases religion is uh, it's helping a lot, a lot of people, and in some cases it's harming a lot of people. I'm not a fan of um, organized religions. I think that politics of religion is in general tends to abuse people in many, many ways. And um, I'm more for the spirituality kind. Um, but I don't know, it's, it's just people doing politics. And some, some Catholic priests are, are being terrible in violating human rights, especially women's rights in Mexico and Latin America. And some of them are trying to rescue women forcibly, telling them they're slaves. So, and, and I do not believe in that. You know, I, I think it's quite complex. Mm. Can we just make it a very quick one? Because we're about to finish. Um, Lydia, I'm a mum and a grandma of boys. And I just want to know from you, does it need to be men who reveal masculinity in that work? Or do you think that women can, you know, does it have to be men who are actually in that work? I don't think so. I think that uh, we, um, the teachers, the biggest teachers, teachers of sexism are, uh, of 
course, fathers and grandfathers, but are also mothers and grandmothers. And uh, we can do the contrary. I think that women can, when we, when we educate our children or our grandchildren, I also have a grand, um, grandchild, uh, he's a boy, um, we, we can do a lot, but absolutely, I do believe that they need a, an example of a man. That's why we need more heroes, more men heroes in that sense, and masculinity. Teachers. Before we thank Lydia, I'm afraid we're going to have to close our questions off there. Before we thank Lydia, do remember that you have the opportunity uh, to see her speaking this afternoon. Um, if you don't have tickets to one of her sessions, which are both sold out, at three o'clock, um, her discussion uh, with Marsha Guess and uh, Bradley Garrett and Stan Grant about living dangerously is going to be live streamed, so you would be able to see that. It's absolutely wonderful here to have you as a Thank guest. You. We're honoured that you have been able to come to Australia and come to the Festival of Dangerous Ideas. Lydia is also going to be on Q&A tomorrow night, so tell your friends. It'll be wow, a, a wonderful, dangerous edition. <laughs> yes. Um, so please join me in thanking Lydia. Thank you.